0: Starlight! Where's the frustrating answer? Where you want Ephraim Matos, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast
1: thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. We have been listening to your interviews and going over the stuff that you've put out there for a while now. And it really started when uh, Shelby, the Stoic, those of you that know my Foxhole, you know, Shelby, the Stoic, he actually shared an interview that you did with Andy Stump. And what I find interesting about some of those interviews is some of them seem a little bit hard to get through, right? Because you're talking about combat, you're yep. talking about personal stuff. And even if it's another seal, it's kind of difficult. So I guess a great place for us to start today <laughs> is do you even like doing interviews like that where you're, you know, to a certain degree, bearing your soul, but also talking about some very, very personal things to you.
1: Well, I mean, I, I do enjoy, you know, going and having a good conversation. Yeah. You know, um, but you know, for me, the, the hardest part for me is just kind of talking about, uh, you know, combat stuff, which is, in my opinion is, 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 it's a very personal thing. It's like, um, it's not something that you want to ever come across. Like you're trying to brag about what you did in your past or, um, you know, try to, I don't know, seek recognition for it. That's, that's something that I, so it's, it feels a little bit counterintuitive. However, because I run a, you know, a nonprofit organization, you know, I, I do enjoy the opportunity to be able to tell stories and, you know, that allows us to, you know, be able to raise support to continue, you know, helping other people overseas. So, uh, it's, it's bittersweet, but you know I, I definitely enjoy, I definitely do enjoy the process.
0: Well, Hey, even if you didn't enjoy the process, we were going to keep you here anyway. So we were going to keep asking you our questions <laughs> and we're going to get into it today. And guys, we're going to go into a lot of different subjects, but I really want to kick off with something that was in your book, city of death. And, and we'll be coming into and out of your book and kind of going through some quotes throughout the podcast episode today, but I want to really start off with how you started the entire book. And that was with a quote from Edmund Burke. And I've heard this quote before and I've seen it before, but it was just such an appropriate start to your book because of the contents of the rest Mm -hmm. of the book. But here's the quote. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So why is that quote so important to you? So important that you would start your book off with it.
1: That quote is so, is so important to me because it, it talks about actually taking action. We, I mean how many times do we sit around and discuss you know the evil in the world the 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 bad things that are happening and then nobody actually goes and does anything about it
0: right um
1: right. so the most important part of that is the fact that it's about taking action but the other part of that quote that's so important is it is it really hits a nerve on the reality of the world and the reality of the world is things tend toward decay things tend toward entropy and the entire idea is that evil and bad people doing bad things they are going to do this stuff it is just it is just mm-hmm. it's just human nature it is just natural law bad people are going to do bad things regardless even if even if we lived in a utopian society and everything was great humans are still human so entropy is still going to happen people are going to continue to um and try to inflict their will on others and what that talks about what that what that statement really means is that there is that state of decay there's that state of tragedy and horror and evil that happens. And the only thing that has to happen for it to win is for you just to sit back and watch. That's
0: mm-hmm. all that has to happen. Mm-hmm.
1: All that has to happen is just, is for people to sit around and talk about it, observe it, but then all you have to do is nothing. It's, so it's very easy. It's very easy to make excuses. It's very easy to say, I'm gonna sit, you know, I'm gonna sit on my hands. I'm not gonna stand up for any of this because of this reason or another. Um, I'm, I'm too scared. I've got too many other responsibilities or it's somebody right. else will deal with it. And it's like all, and that's all that evil needs. That's all that evil needs is for us to sit on our hands and not take action. And so um, I try to live my life. I By by no means am I a perfect person and I'm so flawed in so many ways. But one thing I try to do to make up for my failures and make up for my flaws is to take action. Right. It is to not do nothing because um, the evil is out there. The people out there, there are people who need help um, and- we're going to do something about it. We're not going to uh, sit on our hands.
0: When I love that you're imploring people to action because here at Undaunted Life, we equip men to push back darkness. And we also equip them to cultivate spiritual, mental, and physical resilience on a daily basis. But a lot of that just has to do with action. A lot of guys, you know, I guess the easiest example, the lowest hanging fruit is somebody that's wanting to get in shape. You know, You don't need to just read blogs on how to get in shape. You don't need to just buy the gear. At some point, you've got to move more and eat less. Like if you want to be in shape, if that's like the type of person that you want to be, that's a philosophy that you have to carry. And I think that kind of goes in nicely to where I feel like you had a very early turning point in your life. And you talk about this in your book, in your book, you detail a rather life altering interaction that you had with your 10th grade history teacher. Um, He asked the classroom, did God allow 9-11 to happen? And the ensuing interaction that you had with the students and with mm-hmm. the teacher kind of led to your overall philosophy about how you view the world. So kind mm-hmm. of take us through that story and the impact that it had on you.
1: Yeah. So, so I was raised in a uh, independent fundamental Baptist home um, and I, the church and the independent fundamental, independent fundamental Baptist church was, was our life. And I want to be very clear up front, Like I have nothing but uh, respect for these people. They, I had a great childhood. Um, so I don't want anything I say going forward to, I don't want it to come across as disrespect, uh, to them because yeah, they're still my friends and they're good people and they're well-intentioned. However, one of the flaws I saw in the ideology, and I think this is true with a lot of different religious ideologies was they, they would say stuff like, oh, well, what is like, what is God's will? God is doing anything. God has, God has a plan, all these other things. Right. And I think there's definitely some truth to a lot of that. However, I saw that people would, people would just become passive in their life. And in the world, I, I just saw that happening in the world around me in the world of politics and everything, because people were saying, Oh, it's just God's plan. And like, Oh, that's what God wanted to happen. And in reality, in my mind, I was like, ah, I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's accurate or not. So the interaction, so that's the, that's the lead up to this interaction that I had. The interaction I had with, uh, the history teacher, um, who was also, uh, one of the one of the leaders of our church and everything. Um, he he had this really interesting question and he said, "Why did God allow 9/11 to happen?" right? Because it's God's will. Why did God want this to happen? And so of course I responded, as I was supposed to. I said, "Well, cuz God had a plan and you know, there's some sort of greater good that's going to come from that and that was God's intention all along." And he said, "Okay, well what about all the what about all the babies that were killed? What about all the children that died?" And I thought in my you know, my young man's brain, I thought like, well, that must was, you know, well, that was God's plan. Again, there's a greater purpose. You know, his ways are above our ways, like these little catchphrases. And our history teacher stopped and he said, he said, what about this? He's like, think about this. He's like, what if God didn't do 9-11? What if God had nothing to do with it? What if it broke God's heart? And what if it was actually terrorists who did 9-11 and God didn't want it to happen, but we as humans have free will and we can choose to make good decisions or bad decisions. Now, I know that sounds very simple, but at the time that was just, it blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute, like, you know, like what? And then, so that that thought really started like, you know, uh, moving around in my brain and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I thought about, you know, for example, our founding fathers who a lot of them, you know, not all of them, but a large portion of them were, were Christians, for example. And I'm like, the, the founding fathers, they took action. They actually right. fought to rise up and, and fight, you know, fight off King George's army. And so the people that I'm with, the this ideology that I'm around right now, these people would not stand up and fight. They would say, well, you know, God chooses who the king is, God chooses, and it would just be sort of passive. And I'm going in my, and I'm like, no, that's not true. So anyway, this, this. This interaction totally changed my thought process and it became the idea that if you want something to happen you you can if 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 you want to pray if you believe that that helps you know that's great go for it however you need to get up off your knees and then also go do the work because God's not going to move the bullet out of the way he's not going to if if you're just sitting on your knees he's not going to he's not going to move the obstacles out of your life like no you have to go and figure out a way to do that he gave you a brain <laughs> he gave you reason he gave you logic he gave the ability to read um so you need to take advantage of that and go figure out how to solve different problems whatever that problem might be in your life whether it's financially relationship you know and of course if you can go to the bible and you can find a specific answer in the bible great but 99 percent of our problems are not fixed or you know are, are not directly mentioned you know in the bible so um yeah that was that was kind of the the interaction that i had which really was a turning point in my life in my young life and really set me off on the course that I'm on now.
0: One also sets you up for a life of thinking and a life of philosophizing beyond just kind of the basic points that are being presented. And that's one thing that I feel like Christians do. And that's one thing I try to fight against with this podcast is a lot of Christians don't really think past the initial argument, kind of that first layer. You definitely want to get through that next layer. And, and as you were talking, it kind of reminded me of something uh, from the book of Nehemiah. I'm actually studying Nehemiah right now because I'm, I'm doing some work for uh, for a project. I'm, I'm going to be talking about Nehemiah, but Nehemiah wasn't a guy that just prayed. I mean, this is a guy that went back and helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but he didn't just pray. He didn't just lament over the Jews and what was going on in Jerusalem at the time. This guy acted. He, he risked his life. He went to his boss, King Artaxerxes. He risked his life asking permission for a leave of absence as, as the cupbearer of the King. And, you know, was able to kind of go back and take care of business back in Jerusalem. But it was because he was a man that took action. And this is an important thing that he needed to do. And I really think that this is important for you because your life tended to change uh, as a 10th grader, but then you decided that you were going to do something bigger and that you were going to join the military and that you were going to become a seal. And it's kind of funny because every time we have a Navy seal on this podcast. The question that they're always expecting is, Hey, was buds hard? Did you have to do a lot of push-ups? <laughs> you know, you know, were you tired? Was it, was it a hard physical thing? <laughs> Obviously at this point, we know that it was hard physically and mentally for you to get through buds. But what I want to know, and what I ask everybody that has joined the military is one, why even join the United States military? But then for you specifically, why become a Navy seal?
1: So, I'll answer the first part there. So, why join the military? So, my father he he had been in the Air Force Reserves. He was an en- he was a flight engineer on C one hundred and thirty Hercules. So, in two thousand three, he got deployed to Iraq. So, he was a reservist, but he got activated and sent over. Um, and so, during um, a few years, some of the formative years of my life, um, you know, he was gone. He was gone a lot. But so I was. But I was because of that. I was very attuned to what was going on in the world. I was aware of the military. Of course, I was able to ask him a lot of questions. So I think that's kind of where the idea came from. Um, However, the other part to that is, man, it was, it was in my blood. Um, The idea of fighting to protect other people, the idea to um, stand up for what is right, the idea to protect my country. Um, Yeah, man, that was just, that was in my blood and instilled in me from, from a young age. And, Specifically, when I looked at joining the military, my thought was, okay, well, I want to, I want to do the most difficult thing that, that can be, you know, that, I, I want to join the most challenging thing for me. And I know there's different debates on wh- whose training's harder and whatever. For me, I looked at the SEAL training and I thought, well, I can barely do the doggy paddle in a pool. So that's <laughs> yeah. the most challenging for me. And for somebody else, it might be something different. Um, but for me, it was like, okay, it was like, that seems the most challenging for me. And I don't want to go join like another elite unit. If in the back of my head, I'm going, I'm just running away from, from SEAL training, for example. So I was like, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to go do that. And, um, you know, a few push-ups later, yeah, I was a seal.
0: <laughs> well, so it's interesting. You talk somewhat dismissively about becoming a Navy SEAL and about kind of getting into the Navy SEALs, and even in your book, you you talk about how you shouldn't really be compared to some of the other Navy SEALs that people know in terms of your career, like the Jocko Willinks or the Adam Browns or the Chris Kyles or, or the Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Like you know, those types of things are like, no, no, I don't want to be compared to those guys. And I'm not thinking that you're being dismissive of becoming a SEAL because you don't think it's a hard thing or an important thing to get your trident. I certainly wouldn't put those words in your but the reality was, is you weren't a seal for very long. I, I mean, some people think that you know automatically if you're going to get into the Navy SEALs that it's going to be like, all right, you're going to do your 20 years and then move on with your <laughs> life. But you had a very short tenure. So why did you spend such a short time in the Navy SEALs?
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons why I kind of I try to kind of make light of my service is for a couple of things. Is like one exactly like i didn't do nearly as much as a lot of these other guys like i wasn't on the bin laden raid i didn't help rescue captain Phillips. you know like <laughs> right, I, right i didn't do i didn't do any of that stuff um you know we got we did you know one deployment in afghanistan that one actual combat deployment in afghanistan um so that's that's one reason um but the other thing too is i i don't want to fall into the trap of trying to talk about my military service and trying to you know, I don't know, sort of build myself. sort of resting on your laurels, if you will. It's like, yes, I went and I did that and I'm proud of it. And it was, it was an honor to be a part of such a a great group of guys, such a great unit. Um, However, you know, and and I'm grateful for that. That gave me the skills to do what I do now and to move forward with my life. But I just don't want to, you know, uh, I guess like, yeah, just rest on your laurels. It's like, well, congratulations. That was six years ago. What do you do now? And uh, so the reason I didn't do You know, a full twenty years. So when when I joined the when I joined the Navy, I was um, certainly intent on you know I I yeah let's do let's do twenty let's see how this goes let's see what other units and stuff I can get into. Um, However, the the time that I got into the Navy that was right at the end of the wars. So while there still are like. I guess we call them low intensity conflicts around the world. And SEALs do occasionally, don't get me wrong. They are still actively out there hunting bad guys. It's not um, as much as it was, let's say back in 2006, 2010, right? And so for me, it's like, I I saw pretty quickly that um, the the, the chances of being deployed and actually getting to do actual real world operations and helping people, um, those... The, the, the statistical chances of that happening were just kind of, were, we're continuing to degrade as each day went on. It was like, okay, we just pulled out of here. The rules of engagement over here just got pulled. And again, keep in mind all my friends, all my buddies, they're all stationed all out over the world. So, you know, we get back to San Diego and we're talking, we're talking about all this. So I just, I kind of just saw the signs and I was like, well, um, you know I, I think i could do more if i get out but then the other part too was i saw that there were these conflicts all over the world that the us right, rightfully so is not necessarily directly involved in but i thought okay myself and a couple other guys we could really help those people you know i think of the movie um uh, Tears of the Sun, which I mentioned during the Andy Stump interview. and he was like, yeah. how dare you? Uh, but I seriously, I love that movie. And what's ironic too, is if you watch the beginning of that movie, the quote from Edmund Burke is there mm-hmm. at the beginning of the, at the beginning movie. So that's what I saw myself doing. I was like, I want to be with a small group of guys going in and protecting villages from rape and murder and genocide and all kinds of other atrocities. That's what I want to do. And the us military, again, rightfully so, is not involved everywhere. And so by getting out, I shed the support of the U.S. Uh, government, but I now have freedom of maneuver to go help whoever it is that I want. So that was that for me was a big reason. I'm like, you want to know what? I just need to go do this. I need to pull the trigger on this. Again, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. All I have to do is sit here, stay in the military, get a really good paycheck, um, get really great benefits, live in San Diego and go surfing. You know, <laughs> that's all I have to do. And which sounds pretty good. And I'm serving my country. But then I know in the back of my head, there's a village that's going to burn on the other side of the, on the world that only I can help. And so I can't save all the villages. I can save that one. And so that's what I decided to go save the one village if I can.
0: Sure. And certainly I don't think anybody would be confusing what you're saying with, you know, you being critical of anyone that is staying in and doing their 20 years as a seal. Like, obviously that's not something that you would be doing, but it does seem like seals Mm -hmm. just do become seals so that at some point they can become a best-selling author. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? (laughs) Because We've even had those guys on the show. I mean, we've had, you know, Jack Carr and Dan Crenshaw, and we're going to have some other Navy seals on that. They've got their books and they got all their stuff squared away. Um, but there is something that's, that's interesting that does come from that though. And that's, is kind of the history of kind of the spec ops world in terms of being a quiet yeah. professional not really talking about your missions not really talking about how hard your training was but just going out there and doing what you need to do and, and i'm of the opinion that you know the public should be able to learn from the things that you've done and if there is a way that you can mm-hmm. share the stuff that you've learned with the world without giving up any of our you know trade craft or any of our secrets about kind of how the united states does warfare or how the seals do warfare or the green berets or whatever the situation is there like that's fine like that that's good i think it's good to kind of to share those things, but you mention being a seal, but you mention it almost like it's at the end of who you are as a person. You're like, hey, I'm Ephraim Matos. So like, I run, you know, uh, stronghold, and I do these different things. Oh, also, I was a Navy SEAL. Is that kind of the way that that you would prefer for that to be?
1: Mm-hmm. That's yeah. What you said is is exactly my thought process, and that's kind of what I was talking about. You know, a few minutes ago when you were asking about, you know, do you enjoy doing the podcast and stuff? So for me, yes, I do enjoy the conversation. Um, but again, for me, it's like I don't want to – yes, I did write a book and all these things, but it's like I don't want that to come across like I'm trying to you know, sell the Trident in a way or something like that. Um, so my, my thought process is I think is similar to yours. Um, When it comes to guys, you know, seals writing books or special forces guys writing books, and there's, there's tons of books out there. Like if you go to, if you go to Barnes and Noble, there's just as many Green Beret books as there are seal books. I know everybody gives the seals a hard time, but it's like everybody's writing books. Um, And I, I think that as long as the book is obviously, of course, not giving away, you know, uh, secrets of like how stuff works. um, And as long as it's not just a book to say, Hey, look at my cool war stories. Give me money. But if there's a story to tell, like, you know, a lone survivor, man, what a story people need to hear that story, especially in today's society. Who's, you know, who are the, who are the young men looking up to the Hulk who runs around and smashes things, you know, right. Captain America, who's like basically bulletproof and can fly or whatever, you know, that's not a real hero. That's not somebody to really try to emulate. So I would much rather that, yeah, Hey, go read about, go, go read Lone Survivor, go read about these heroes who fought and died defending each other on the, on the far corners of the earth. And I think that these stories are important in my opinion to be told, but again, it just, there are people who, who can occasionally go over the line and it's just, let me tell you every operation that I was on. Um, And so that, that's another thing too. If you're just telling war stories and you're just talking about operations, there's, there's no, um, there's no net benefit to the community or to the, to the society as a whole. And so in that case, I think it's slightly inappropriate, but also too, I'm such an imperfect human being. I'm not going to judge somebody else for their motives or for whatever it is that, that they're doing. I'm just going to try to do the the best that I can for, for myself and, or I'm going to try to do the right thing. Right. the best that I see how to do it. Yeah. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a great segue to kind of get into the stuff that you were doing. And then this was the stuff that you did after you were a Navy SEAL. And this is starting stronghold rescue and relief. So stronghold is a humanitarian organization and it protects and cares for families in conflict zones. And so you all do that with small teams of really highly skilled former spec ops members. You, you kind of have these missions where you're going to go in and you're using your skill sets to really help these areas. And you're really there to administer emergency aid, right? And that's kind of the main thing, but when necessary, you will work with local authorities to kind of perform some of those high risk, life-saving rescue operations. I mean, I guess the best way to think about this is to not think about what you saw with, you know, John Rambo and the stuff that he was doing. Like that is not what you guys are doing. (laughs) Uh, You are basically there to aid and to support and you are currently operating in several countries and you have Previously operated in other countries, and I'll actually let you get into that because I know there's some sensitivity in some of the operation zones that you're in now that you know you don't want to give away in any, any secrets or uh, put anyone in any danger. But this was what you did from being a SEAL, but it wasn't really a straight line from being a SEAL to mm-hmm. starting Stronghold Rescue in, in relief. So, where did that idea come from, and then how's it going so far?
1: Yeah, so when I was um, I was still in the military, I was on my second deployment, and I was deployed in Southeast Asia, and. As a SEAL, before you do a six-month deployment, which is sort of the standard deployment length, sometimes it's a little longer, sometimes it might be slightly shorter, but the standard length is about six months. Before you do that six-month deployment, you have to do an 18-month workup specifically with your platoon before they'll send you out to do the six-month deployment. Once that six-month deployment is up, you go back to the States and you restart that 18-month workup with a new platoon, or you kind of reorganize a little bit. So- after a year and a half of work and several months overseas in Southeast Asia, I found myself and the rest of us—we were very frustrated because you know ISIS was still heavily involved in in Iraq. It was still t- 2016. There was lots of bad stuff happening, and we found ourselves in Southeast Asia, going around to different Southeast Asian countries, uh, our, our allies, and just kind of building relationships with them and working with them and training with them. So you know, we're down in South Korea you know, working with the uh, South Korean seals and we're, you know, climbing on board ships in the middle of the night and jumping out of helicopters and stuff, which is cool, but that's not what I signed up to do. I signed up to do that, you know, for real. Um, So during that, during that deployment, I just, I I was also very aware of different conflicts that were going on in the world. One specifically was about the ongoing genocide and war that's going on in Burma. And because we're so close to Burma, because we're in Southeast Asia, it was like, man, we are, we're just a couple hour flight away. And at times we're like, we're a 45 minute helicopter ride away from villages where people are under direct threat from uh, rape and murder and all the, and all these and, and human trafficking and all kinds of stuff that these people are facing. And it's like, we're here. Let's go. Let's go do that. Right. Um, so during that, during that deployment in 2016, I had the idea. I thought you want to know what, like, what if I can get out, start some kind of organization that will, to where I can hire, you know, um, spec ops guys to go and do missions like this. Like those people need help. We're not trying to win the war for them. Like you said, there's, there's, there's stipulations on how we do what we do. We keep it very organized, very, uh, very professional and, show a lot of restraint and stuff like that. Um, But I was like, well, I can like, what if I, and then, and at the, at the, at the time I had the idea, but I had no idea how to do that. I was like, I had no cons. I, I couldn't tell you the difference between an LLC or an, and an S corp or a, you know, like I had no, or a nonprofit organization. I had no idea about any of that stuff. It was just an idea and it stuck with me. And I was like, I'm going to get out and I'm going to do that because I was getting out of the military like six months later in 2017. So I was like, I am going to start some kind of organization. And I don't know what that looks like um, on paper but we're going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way. Right. Um, So when I, when I got out of the military, well, obviously we'll, we'll, we'll dive more into this too. I ended up going to Iraq to work with a, a, a humanitarian organization that was working over there um, helping pr- basically protect and care for people who were uh, dealing, having to deal with ISIS. And so during that time, I kind of learned uh, how stuff worked, what's how the, all the different, you know, legal entities work, how all that stuff works. And I also learned a lot of like what not to do, (laughs) but um, I started seeing like, okay, like this can be done. And then about um, a year later after I got hit, um, I was, I was, I found myself in Burma working with people in Burma. And then I knew I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to start an organization officially. This is how, and now I know kind of how to do it. Kind of, (laughs) you know, I know like, I know 20% of just how to get started and um yeah, I just kinda pulled the trigger back in twenty eighteen and uh today we're doing fantastic. Um we actually are gonna be ten Xing our the work that we're doing now. Uh six months from now we'll be ten Xing everything that we're doing because wow. we just got a uh, a nice influx of uh of funding, which is amazing.
0: So, nice, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. No, I think that that's really important to understand from our perspective, because you say you're 10xing in and, and I want you to kind of explain what that means for stronghold, because, you know, from our perspective, we, we certainly want you to tell us how that we can how we can help support what you're doing on the ground in the grounds, wherever you are operating. But, you know, when you open things up for donation, there's always kind of that critical eye where it's like, what are you using these funds for? Right. Like, are you just kind of sitting around like having pizza parties, drinking whiskey, like that kind of thing. (laughs) Even for us, like we just open a donation page and I don't want people thinking that that's what we're doing. But when somebody gives a dollar to what you're doing or gives a million dollars to what you're doing, where does that money go and how is that
1: spent? Sure. So if people go to our website too, they can see kind of uh, just a very basic rundown of the, of the, the key areas where our stuff goes. So the first thing is we believe in having strong uh, good personnel, so part of your support will go to, would go to um basically bringing in special ops guys to go to conflict zones and do humanitarian missions and also do some security advising now um, the reason that you need to pay these guys, of course, is because um so for example, somebody with my background um if I was to go overseas and do a security contract, I would be paid probably just to do security, I'd be paid probably $1,000 a day. That's would be like a going rate in a conflict zone. If you actually wanted me to adv- advise and go into actual direct sort of frontline areas to assist um, or advise the guys that were there, you're looking at 1500 to $2,000 a day. So, which of course we would never, ever pay our guys that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but um But so the point is, it's like you have professionals, if you want to have professionals going and truly helping, um, you need to make sure that they can take care of their families, that they can dedicate themselves to this. One of the things that we really steer away from steer away from is volunteers. Like I get probably a dozen messages um, every 48 hours, just guys wanting to volunteer. And I, and I, I I, we can't respond to all of them because it's just so many. And it's like, we can't take volunteers because that's not going to be a consistent way to help others um so these people are depending on you you show up you take a bunch you, okay let's let's say you go to i don't know uganda you go to uganda you stay for 2 weeks you take a whole bunch of pictures you bring in you know a truckload of food you take a whole bunch of pictures yeah and then you leave well great but now the people are still hurting and that 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 food that you all just that you just dropped off there's a pretty good chance some rebel group is going to come in and just take it all and feed their army with it right of happens. course all the time. So anyway, so the first thing we do is we we believe in investing in our personnel to get the right people to do the right job. The second thing is, of course, humanitarian relief. So that's food, medicine, that's any kind of situation, just specific stuff. So that's your standard humanitarian stuff. We could dig a well, we could put in Um, One one project we did was we uh, built uh, some pipes from a small stream and directed it down to a village so that way the village could have, you know, air quotes, uh, running water, (laughs) Um, anything like that, Um, emergency aid. So you got refugees, whatever. That's what all of that stuff goes for. And then the third thing that we do, which I think makes us um, very, very unique and is I think probably the most important part of what we do is I call it charity with dignity. And everything that we do, we are focused on the long term, first of all, but we do that by um, training up the locals, creating teams of locals who are supported by us, but it's locals helping locals. We give them the skill sets. So for example, in 2020, COVID hit. So travel restrictions were down, right? Well, and and so the, the different places overseas, well, Bad people are still doing bad things, but now we can't get to them as easily to help them. Well, it wasn't an issue for us because we already had team leaders of local tribes, of, of people from the local tribes who were already running the humanitarian operations on their own. And we were supporting them, checking in with them, advising and you know, growing the missions. So we call it Charity with Dignity, and it's all about building skill sets within the communities and not having the savior complex where it's like, we're, here we are. The great, the great Western saviors. We're here. We are to, you know, do everything for you. It's like, hey, we're gonna hit. We're, we're, we we love you. We care for you. We're gonna help you. We're gonna train you. We're gonna support you. But when a a villager who just lost their home and their tribe has been decimated and thousands of people have been killed or pushed from their homes and they're you know all kinds of horrible things are happening and then all of a sudden now you have some guy from America giving them food. They're still humans too, and they still feel the indignity of that. However. If you have somebody from their own tribe giving them food, now it's no now it's communities helping communities. and yes, we're there to back them up. but we really want to put the um, a friendly face not a friendly face, but a, a familiar face with with that aid, if that makes sense. So it's all about building up. The locals to stand on their own.
0: Right. And I think that's an important thing, obviously, because it's kind of like when a parent is helping a kid too much, they're, they're not li- really allowing the kid to make mistakes and learn some of those things. But for you, for a man of action, for somebody with the training that you have, like it had to have driven you nuts to, to not just hop in into those situations and just act immediately and just take over those situations, just because you are a man of action and you want to get these things done and you really, really care about what you're doing. So was that hard for you to operate in a way where you kind of had to be a little bit hands off?
1: Well, no, I th- that's, that's definitely a very important part of making sure that we have the right people that we're bringing from the West to, to help um, overseas. For me, I really, really, it's, it's a, My personality is I will absolutely step in there and help if needed, but I'm kind of a teacher by nature. So I enjoy, I I personally find great joy in teaching somebody to do something, seeing them do it on their own, and then waving goodbye as they go and do great things. I personally find great joy in that. However, not everybody does. So yes, I am a man of action, but for me, the action is, hey, like I'm already in this village. I'm already on the other side of the world. I'm here, you know, the there's a war going on, you know, 200 yards that way. So like, I'm already there, but, um, so I am in the action air quotes, but I really enjoy the opportunity to see these guys be able to do their own thing uh, and be able to do things on their own. And then being back in the States and then getting a report, Hey, we just did this mission and this mission and this mission. And it's like, Oh my word. It's like, can bring you to tears. You're just like, I'm so proud of you guys. That's so cool. Um, yeah. Talking about, a. But we also have to be very careful with the personnel that we bring in. So uh, I always say, I'm not looking for, uh, I'm not looking for the best man. I'm looking for the right man. Like you could be Delta 4, SEAL Team 6, CIA, SOG, you know, whatever. If you don't have the right like humanitarian mindset, it's like, ah, like, eh, then it really could work. <laughs> so um, yeah, we're, we have to be very uh, careful about that because guys will be well-intentioned, but then they're just like, ah, they want to go deal with the problem. And you're like, nope, you got to teach these people to deal with the problem.
0: So there's probably a little bit of a misreception here for me, because whenever I look at people that are doing humanitarian work, I'm always looking at them like, well, it's kind of hard for me to know exactly what they're doing because some people have humanitarian in their name. And then whenever you look at the stuff that they're actually doing on a day in day out basis, it doesn't actually sound that humanitarian. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that are doing stuff that's not even remotely related. And it's just a little bit hard for me to know exactly what y'all are doing when you're on the ground. So what are some of the misperceptions about what y'all do on the ground?
1: Sure. So I think one of the biggest misperceptions is, you know, uh, people think that we're all, you know, just in the action, right? Because like, we're going to talk through some stories during this podcast, and we're going to tell some war stories. We're going to talk about some shootouts. We're going to talk about some some pretty crazy stuff. And the reason that we're going to talk about that is because there's drama. There's a There's an exciting event that people want to hear about. However, what people need to understand is that while that might take up 80% of the conversation, that's probably one percent of what we actually do. The other ninety-nine percent is the training and the bringing in the humanitarian aid and the organizing and dealing with these other problems. And then when things go south, which they do very very often, we handle business and then we go back to just you know doing the humanitarian thing. So that's that's one of the big perceptions, at least specifically with us. Um, but i i also think too there's there's a lot of misperception with like how um charity organizations should work and how they should operate and we can get into some of that stuff a little bit later but um i th- i think that um yeah i think i think that's just the biggest point is i don't want people to think that we're like some mercenary army running around <laughs> you know the jungles right. uh being rambo because that's like not the case at all but it, the perception is there because we talk about those stories cuz those are you know the sort of the the dramatic points of the story.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so I think this is probably a good time to rip off the band-aid on the whole charity thing, because I know for you specifically that you have, and we won't talk about any organizations by name, unless you bring them up, because then I'm absolved of all issues. But if you've seen things with other humanitarian organizations that we can just say it nicely, have more than rubbed you the wrong way. Because for me, for people like me that just sit here stateside, I just assume all these humanitarian organizations are operating mm-hmm. with the utmost integrity and that everybody is doing things well and that the money is being well spent, even though I'm, I'm a little bit you know, wary of giving money to those organizations when I don't know exactly what the dollars are being spent on. But you've seen some things that really, really concern you with how humanitarian organizations were operating overseas. And I just want you to kind of explain that to us. And again, we're not here to throw any organizations under the mm-hmm. bus. Uh, we just want to have a better idea as to kind of what things look like because a lot of these organizations have humanitarian in their name right right, right? and so it's just like you're thinking oh th- these guys are going to be operating with the utmost integrity in all situations and unfortunately that's just i don't want to say that that's never the case but it's not always the case and i don't know if we can put a percentage on it but for you what are some of the things that you see on the ground with some of these other organizations
1: sure so i i guess um i have i have i literally have i was just pulling up my phone here i've got just Probably twenty or thirty different specific instances of just crazy, uh, just bizarre stuff that's happened. But um, instead of like mentioning specific stuff, maybe I'll give an example or two. Some of the some of the the principles that people I, I wanted like people to understand like when they look at a charity organization or a humanitarian organization, they there are some red flags and some stuff that people should be aware of of how of how things actually work. And just some red flags we can kind of spot an organization that. Might not be doing anything illegal, and they might, even, might They might not even be doing things immoral, but they're probably being very, very inefficient and not using your support. So, the the single biggest one is uh, what I call the cult of personality, and it's when you have this organization like, okay, unless there's like a very, very famous person who everybody would already know, unless they are unless they were already this famous person, and they put their name as the name of the foundation, huge red flag, because the people will, will use organizations to kind of puff themselves up and to try to make themselves, um, I don't know, like feed their pride. It's the weirdest thing. It's so weird. Cause it's like, you're literally in a way, like you're standing on the, you're standing on the shoulders of small children to make yourself look cool. Cause like you're some sort of hero and it's like, no dude, it should be the other way around. So for, so for example, um it's it 's not a problem if it 's like okay like the Tim Tebow foundation, right so recognizable name, everybody knows who he is that 's fine because it 's like yeah like that his name can draw people to help uh fight human trafficking like they do, which is awesome so th- in that case it 's not a cult of personality, but there 's other organizations again i 'm not going to mention specific stuff, but just really 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 be aware of that um the next thing is like i guess short sighted or Inflated projects where people go, okay, you know, there's a bunch of refugees. They go in, they bring in ten thousand water bottles, which is great. You know, that's a great thing to do. There's so they hand out ten thousand individual water bottles to refugees, and then and their report they say we helped ten thousand people in in a war zone and blah blah. blah. And it's like, yes, that's true, and you did a good thing. However your supporters are going like, wait, you know, like they think that you helped 10,000 people like, no, you handed out 10,000 water bottles. So there's um, something like that. One of the other things is mismanagement of staff. If all of your staff are like, if, the, if you, if you are not bringing in professional people to help run your operations and it's all strictly just volunteers, I, while volunteering is a great thing. Um, and I encourage people to do that if they get the opportunity. Um, what can happen is if you were actually running the organization all by volunteers, things are not going to be run properly because you have unqualified individuals who are there for short amounts of time who are taking care of the back end stuff. And so I, like things are not going to go the way that they should be. Um, and the other one we kind of mentioned was just a savior complex where if you come in and you say, this is what we do and we're going to come in and we're going to do that for you without actually talking to the people and saying, Hey, what do you need? How could, here's our resources. How can we best help you? Um, So a a crazy example might be like, okay, if you dig wells, right, that's an awesome thing to do. And you want to know what? There are tons of places where people need wells. Well, if you go to Burma, for example, and you're like, we're going to dig wells for you, you know, because that's what we do. And we're here to save the day. Like the people in Burma, they're like, well, "Yeah, we don't need, we don't need wells." Like, what are you talking about? There's water everywhere. We're like, we're you know, we're constantly dealing with it. So that's just something to kind of be aware of. Um, the other thing is another one is voluntourism, and that has to do with um, this. This is this to me is one of the most egregious things. So what'll happen is you'll have a volunteer will spend two, three, four, five thousand dollars to go to some foreign place. And uh they're basically just there having an adventure. Let's just be real. Like that's what they're doing. They're just there to have an adventure. They're volunteering. They're doing good work. You know, and they're not but they're but they don't actually have any specific skill set. They're there just to take pictures and put it on Instagram and then go back and tell their church and say, Hey, look at look what I did and you know, give me more money to go back and do it again. What you're doing is like you're literally just sending somebody over there to yeah. Basically have fun. Now I'm, I'm not saying that's the case with like, if you're a doctor or you have an actual specific skill set or a nurse or something like that, you're actually having a real thing or you're a teacher and you're like, Hey, I'm going to go teach English um, or whatever. Um, that's a great thing. But if it's just people going on adventures, you just really be aware of that because they're wasting thousands and thousands of dollars and man hours. And not only did they spend their own money to get there, which they could have used to actually helping the people now you have to feed that person. You have to provide transportation for them. They need a place to sleep. There's security implications. There's group size implications. So there's all kinds of stuff. So just having a body there um, oftentimes is not the best thing. And then um, this one's my last little point and I'll get off my high horse, (laughs) but uh, one of the, just one of the last things I just want people to kind of be aware of is, I don't know how to phrase this, well, but basically, trying to mix secular causes with like religious ideology. So I know incredible organizations that are run by people of faith, and they're they're awesome and they're great organizations. However, what can happen is um, if you have, for example, okay, let's just say you have an organization that digs wells or something, right? You can have great Christian folks, great religious folks who run that organization and do a great job. However, there is sometimes the danger of if you have people who are trying to promote specifically a religious cause under, excuse me, under secular pretenses, what can happen is instead of working logically or working with the people there, there there's a chance. And I've seen, and I, and I, unfortunately I've seen this a lot of times where it's, well, this is God's will. This is what God wants us to do. And they're just so wrapped around the idea of like, Oh, God wants us to put a well in this village or this, or that, or the other thing, or God spoke to me. And it's like, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but that's not the best place. That's not the best place to put the well, you know, <laughs> or, uh, they'll only, you know, bring in other people from their religion to help work with the organization. So, um, that one's again, more of like a, a sensitive topic. Cause I don't want to like insult anybody or anything like that, but just another thing to be aware of. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's, those, those are, those are some of the principles that are really at play that you really kind of got to figure out when you're looking at an organization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just to tell you, man, after a couple hundred episodes of this podcast, I just got to tell you, I've offended enough people. You're probably not going to say anything that's going to offend these people if I haven't already done it. So don't (laughs) worry about that. But guys, we will make sure in the show notes here that we've got a link to the Stronghold Rescue and Relief website. We want to make sure that you can go to the donation page and you can check that out for yourself. Hit the donation button and you can kind of see there's like a little t-shirt deal that you guys have. But also you provide a way for people to stay in touch with the things that you're doing with the organization. You allow them to put in their email address and they'll get quarterly updates as to some of the things things that they're doing, some of the things that you're doing with their money, all that's all squared away. But I do want to go ahead and transition into the next part of the podcast where we talk about how, you know, you left the Navy SEALs, but you didn't leave the fight. So you actually re-entered the fight, but this time it was against ISIS and it was in Mosul. And so Mm -hmm. there is a a long backstory there. there, There's a lot of things that we could go into, a lot of tendrils that come off of that story. But guys, you're going to have to go read the book if you want to get a lot more of that detail. But if you could just go ahead and give us kind of the spark notes version of kind of how all of that happened, Uh, because at the time that you were kind of going over to Mosul and doing those different things and kind of starting the fight against ISIS, technically, on, at least on paper, you were still a member of the United States military, <laughs> right? So it's, yeah, it's kind of an issue. Yeah. So, so kind of tell us about how all that went down and how you ended up over there.
1: Sure. So it's, it's definitely a, uh, a crazy thing. And before I tell the story, I want to record, like, don't do this. So if there's anybody <laughs> in the military is <laughs> right, listening to this, I'm right. like, listen, things worked out okay for me. Um, but th- it was not in, in hindsight, it was not the, w- I did not make the wisest decisions. Um, I was just, you know, fueled by passion to go and, and help, and that's great but um yeah i'm not encouraging anybody to do this all right so what happened was uh, my time in the service was ending in april of 2017 that was for, when my it was called the eaos um, end of service and when when you get out of the military you have um you usually have saved up leave cuz the military gives you a month of leave per year but you don't actually get to take it which is funny right, so of course. i had like 2 months of of saved up leave and so what I did was I basically, what, what they'll allow you to do is basically get out of the military a couple um, a, a couple of months early. You can just basically take all that leave right at the end. And, you know, so I opted to do that. So I was still technically on leave in the U.S. military and I got a flight, flew to Iraq um, to meet up with another group of uh, volunteers or several different organizations and stuff working there. Um yeah. So I, I met up with another group of, of, of folks and I was still technically in the military and, uh, yeah, we drove out to, um, the outskirts of Mosul, Mosul, West Mosul at that point was still completely controlled by ISIS. It was probably the deadliest couple square miles on the planet at the moment or at that time in 2017. And so we were in the outskirts around the area, um, just helping all the displaced people. We were working directly with an, an Iraqi army Uh, armored unit. So they had lots of tanks and uh, Humvees and things like that. So we were kind of staying outside of the city because as any basic tactician can tell you, you don't want to start sending tanks and stuff into, into small choke points in cities um, because they'll get annihilated. Um, So during, so probably my first three or four weeks there, we were just kind of out in the countryside doing medical clinics and giving humanitarian aid and then um, we actually get ended up getting involved in one actual direct on the ground assault into um, into a small village that was held by ISIS. And during that fight, our role was just to act as basically combat medics for the Iraqi army and for any civilians, of course, that are that are injured. And You know, so we ended up, you know, crossing a minefield and it was just this insane shootout with ISIS suicide bombers and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And that was the day before this fight I got into was the day before I was technically out of the military. So, um, yeah, so it was was just kind of bizarre. Like, technically, I was still active duty military, but in all reality, it's like, yeah, they didn't. I I was long gone. They didn't they didn't care about care about me at that point. (laughs) Well, I'm sure
0: they cared about you a little bit, but I'm, I am glad that you put that caveat out there. That's like, Hey guys, don't do this, right? This is not your seven step program to a successful military career. So guys, military listening to this podcast, don't do that. listen to Ephraim and guys, I know there are a lot of active duty and retired military that listen to this. We do appreciate you guys, but I do want to go ahead and transition into a a quote from your book, because this is a quote that is from April the 7th of 2017. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an important thing because I think it gives Mm -hmm. us a little bit of your mindset at the time. So I'll go and go to the book here. Quote, despite the precarious situation, I couldn't stop smiling. This would be my first battle against ISIS, but more importantly, I was eager to get back into combat. It had been two and a half years since I'd fired a weapon in battle. Of course, never during those two years of anticipation did I imagine the circumstances that I'd find myself in, an armed civilian in an ambulance on the Nineveh Plains with an Iraqi soldier, a Karen guerrilla, and a former Green Beret about to join an Iraqi armored brigade's days a daytime frontal assault on ISIS. This is actually happening, unquote. <laughs> so, uh, Efren, I just got to tell you, I'm not sure you're aware of this but that's not a normal mindset. Okay, <laughs> like That is not something like a guy like me and even some of the toughest dudes that I'm around that I know, like this isn't kind of that normal mindset, like even just kind of reading the circumstances of what you were inserting yourself into would be enough to kind of give people at least a little bit of a pause, right? That's just not a normal way that people are operating. And I think it goes even just beyond <laughs> just, a, you know, warrior wiring or something like that. So, but to normal people like me and to a lot of the guys listening to this, go in and explain, elucidate that a little further, mm-hmm. what that mindset is. Mindset is like,
1: sure. So I, th- I think you know, yeah. I have this you know big smile on my face, and I was super excited. Well, th- what it really comes down to is I am. I guess I just am wired that way. Like that's what I want to do. I want to you know go into those dangerous situations to protect and care for people. So that's one. But I think on a deeper level, it was like my life has purpose. Now I'm doing something that matters. Like there's, there's something that, you know, that the active duty military guys, that they can all relate to. There's, there's something about being involved in something that really truly matters. And when you wake up that day and you grab your rifle and you go outside the wire, or you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, you're hopping in the, you're hopping in your helicopter or the cockpit of your fighter jet, whatever, you know, that what you are doing that day truly, truly matters and nothing else That specific day really matters. Of course, family and God and faith and all that stuff does matter. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, but I'm just saying, like, you, what you're doing truly matters. And the decisions that you make that day will affect somebody else's life. You have the opportunity to save a life. You have the opportunity to end a bad life, um, or somebody who's, you know, hurting others. And you have the opportunity to liberate a village. You have the, like, so, so those kinds of things are, um, also kind of going in the back of your mind on a more subconscious level. Um, But yeah, I think that's probably more more my mindset was I was like, yep, this is it. This is what I, this is what, this is what I do. Like, this is, this is my trade. Um, It's also, think about it too, is like, if you're a a football player, for example, right? Who wants to get hit by like some 250 pounds, you know, (laughs) six foot four dude running at like 12 miles an hour, like and just get laid out on the ground. Who wants that? I don't. But there's some there's some guys there's lots of guys who are like, man, put me in, coach. I want to get in there. I want to get in there. I don't care if this could happen. I don't care. I want to get in the game because they love the game, and that's kind of that's kind of how I was feeling. I was like, this is what I do. This is I I love this, um, and this is where I'm supposed to be. More importantly, and of course, you're scared. I mean, we that that day specifically, um, yeah, we crossed a minefield. The Humvee I was standing right next to blew up a, a few seconds after I walked away from it. A tank blew up. Um, we're, you know, chasing ISIS guys down into, into tunnels and there's landmines in the tunnels and we, you know, throwing grenades underground in ISIS tunnels and you could see where they had peed right before the fight had started and like all kinds of craziness. So you're terrified of course, but you're also where you're supposed to be. And you just, I, I feel like humans, like when we, when we, when we align our, our passions and what we care about, and we align that with a purpose to do good in the world, whether that's in business or whatever. Like we wake up in the morning and we just know like, man, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. There's nowhere else I would rather be.
0: Right. And I know there's a lot of guys listening to this podcast that can relate to that. I mean, regardless of what you're in, whether you're in sales or or you're a defense attorney or an accountant or something like that. I mean, there are a lot of situations that you would look at somebody else and it's like, man, how, how can that defense attorney be so cool and calm in that situation? And that's just, it's because they're wired to do that. Like they're good at that. Like that's exactly what they were meant to do. And they are just acting that out in the real world. But I I think that really goes nicely Mm -hmm. into kind of this next big story that I want to talk about. Um, it's kind of a crazy story. It's a very sticky story for me. Even after I finished the book, it's something that I kept thinking about. So I'm going to go ahead and read that here. So here's a quote. A middle-aged man lay on the ground groaning. He had been shot multiple times in the legs. Next to him lay a little girl, maybe nine or 10 years old in a bright yellow dress. She had undoubtedly picked her favorite and prettiest dress for today because today was supposed to be a special day. Today, after three years of living under ISIS rule, she and her father were supposed to finally be free, but instead of freedom, she had been shot in the head by an ISIS sniper. Her yellow dress was stained with blood as she lay unconscious but alive in a twisted heap in the dirt. Skye, Slowly, and Silverhorn were already working on the man and his daughter. There was nothing I could do to help, so I knelt down beside the little girl, fixed her dress to cover her legs. I tried to hold back tears, but it wasn't working. I took the little girl's limp hand in my hand as tears began to run like rivers down my face. Who could do such a thing to an innocent little girl? This was my first time I'd ever broken down and lost my composure in a combat zone. I mean, that's tough. That, that is a really, really tough one for you. And I I think this was only like a few days or or maybe even just a few weeks after that first one where your mindset was like, I can't wait to go. Like, this is going to be awesome. Like, let's, let's go ahead and get into the fight. But you know, it's a tough situation. I want to kind of get into, or at least give you some space to kind of give us a sense of what your mindset was at that time. Because again, it's going to be hard for us really to understand in kind of our modern Western American context out here in the suburbs, that type of a thing. But I also want to kind of know how things ended up for the people that were you know talked about in this story. But again, let's go ahead and get into a little bit more of what the mindset was for you as all this was going down and the aftermath.
1: Sure. So, the, so the, the story that we just mentioned before, the smile on my face, we're going in. That was April 7th, 2017. The story that you just mentioned was May 4th, 2017. And this little girl in this bright yellow dress, she had been shot in the head, as you mentioned, and um, her father had been shot multiple times. The other guys on the team, some of the guys that you mentioned, uh, Sky, uh, Slowly, Silverhorn, these are the Slowly and Silverhorn. They're uh, guys from the Karen tribe in Burma. Um, They and, and a few other guys had been involved in actually going into under fire rescue this little girl and her dad. Um, I was not personally there. I was about a hundred yards back, um, d- doing some other stuff, I actually had to coordinate to get them rescued because their Humvee got so shot up also our during that same mission to, to get this little girl out, our interpreter Shaheen had been shot in the stomach and he died a couple days later. And we had an Iraqi driver, uh, named Muhammad who actually converted to Christianity. <laughs> uh, it was, it was nice, it re- just like the nicest guy you'll ever meet in your life. He had been shot six times. Um, to get a Humvee because after the first Humvee had been shot, he had been shot six times getting a Humvee to get um, the other guys and that little girl out of there. Um, and during this firefight, which I was, again, I was back a little bit coordinating with the Iraqi army to send down tanks and B, and um, and uh, BMPs to uh, protect them. When we got that little girl and the, and the dad back, our ambulance had already left, our armored ambulance had already left to go drop off other wounded people. I think it was actually Muhammad and Shaheen and they were on their way returning. So the basically we pulled them out of the humvee, just kind of laid them on the ground um, in in the grass and the medics, the real medics were sitting there working on the father and the little girl. And so yeah, as you said like I know that evil exists. I know and I knew that and I understand that stuff could happen. However, just where I was at mentally, I I wasn't mentally prepared to see that that day. And that was on me. That was my mistake. That was my fault. I did not – I was almost lured into a sense of complacency maybe by the previous couple of weeks where nothing nothing super, super crazy had happened. And so you wake up – like you just – you wake up one morning, you're, you're – that, that battle, the May 4th battle was the Iraqi army, the entire 9th armored division was assaulting West Mosul across this open plane. It was, it was actually, it was like a, almost D-Day style, just, you know, 50 or 60 tanks, just firing all at once, charging straight into the enemy lines. And it was like, it was it, for me, it was like, Oh, this is actually kind of cool. Um, just the historical relevance of it. But anyway, so you're, you're confronted with it. It's, it's all fun and games until it's like, wow, you're like, look at this little girl who's just been shot in the head and she's probably going to die. And so for me, it's like, I was so overcome with emotion that, yeah, I just was, I just kind of held her hand and I just kind of wept. I didn't know what else to do. I fixed her dress and I just kind of held her hand. Cause I, I was the real medics were dealing with her. Um, now the crazy thing is, so that little girl, she lived, <laughs> she lived, yeah, she lost nuts. an eye. That's nuts. Uh, she magically, thank God she lived, her father lived. And some of the guys who were actually involved in that mission Uh, I think like a year or so later, we're actually back in Northern Iraq and actually met up with them and took, you know, selfies with them. And she's, she's this, uh, lively from, from what I hear, she's just this lively, um, uh, funny girl who likes to, you know, she's just super energetic and loves doing selfies and whatever. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, I mean, had, had those guys not been there, had the group of us not been there, uh, she would have bled out in the street. Um, and her father too.
0: Yeah, that, that is just such a crazy story, and it's, it's really hard to relate to something like that, but our mutual friend Holly McKay, uh, we talked about that a lot in her book, Only Cry for the Living. I mean, just mm-hmm. the unimaginable horror that she details in that book, and you detail some of it in your book as well, it, it's just crazy, and it does kind of make you question God's place in the universe, and we'll certainly get maybe into a little bit more ethereal mm-hmm. discussions like that a little bit later, but I do want to get into, because I kind of forgot that that was on May the mm-hmm. 4th, and so I do want to get into the another entry from that day, because, uh, you know, the, I couldn't stop smiling. Smiling quote that was from April 7th, and less than a month later. Okay, so we're talking about May 4th. I want to go ahead and get into this quote here, and so we're going to go ahead and uh, go back to a quote from May 4th again. I'm sitting there, sporadic bursts of muffled gunfire and the occasional explosion still echoing from somewhere in the distance. I realized I'd lost any and all illusions about the adventure of war. The initial flurry of action had passed, the adrenaline was gone, and all that was left was a harsh, bloody, and exhausting reality until today war had been nothing to me but an object of excitement sure there'd been fear and danger but i had always been on the side that won without taking any serious hits war had been a chance to prove my manliness and courage it was a game to be played but today while i helped a, wrap a rapid bandage that held a soldier's guts in the illusion of that game began to fade while i wept and held an unconscious little girl's limp hand that illusion was erased forever war was real And truly, it could only be described as hell. And I mean, Ephraim, this is after you were a Navy SEAL, right? That's when you're writing this. You had already seen war. But at this point, it just seems like the excitement is really gone for you. I mean, like the the excitement is now just completely gone from this situation. And now all you seem to be racked with is not excitement and and angst. You seem to just be racked Mm -hmm. with concern for these people that you're now trying to deliver aid to. And again, this is so hard for us to imagine here stateside, and especially for those of us that have never seen Mm -hmm. actual warfare or any of these atrocities, but for you on the ground, like this was just what you were living in your everyday scenario. And there was no escape. And you're almost realizing that there is no escape at this point. So uh, I mean, I don't want to read into anything that's not there. Am I reading this situation clearly from your perspective in terms of how you saw it?
1: You, you absolutely are. So during 2014, ironically, while ISIS was taking over northern Iraq, um, I was in Afghanistan. And so during that time, during the, the few months I was in Afghanistan, it was summer fighting season, and we got into a lot of really gnarly gunfights. We We really did. The most serious injury that happened though on our side was, um, our, our sister platoon or our brother platoon, uh, one of the EOD guys got shot in the hand and he was fine. He walked out of there and he was more annoyed than anything. And he was, you know, he's, he's back to doing his job now. Great, great guy. Um, but that was, that was the, the, when we went into battle, it was you're with, you know, I'm with 20 other seals and we've got aircraft stacked from you know 5000 feet up to 25000 feet just A10s AC130 gunships mm-hmm. drones everything and if we run out of those if we if those guys run out of ammunition we can call more right and so it was honestly like my time in Afghanistan it was fun it was it was it was so cool it was like we we won every single fight um it was it was great so being but that but we were also fighting asymmetrical warfare we were this clearly superior dominant unit going against guys who are just, you know, clearly just inferior in training and tactics and everything, right, still, right. still hard fighters, but totally different animal. So when we, so when, when, I was in, when I, when I was in Iraq, the, the battle for Mosul specifically was the, was the deadliest urban battle that the world has seen since World War II. And you know, later on, you know, the day that I got hit, that was the day after the deadliest day of that deadliest battle, and the fighting that happened there was of World War II proportions. At nowhere else, nowhere else in the world, were fifty tanks lining up, firing volleys of fire simultaneously, while helicopters are flying over, bombing stuff, and. You're not even sure if you're actually going to win the fight because ISIS was dug in everywhere. Every road, every room, every inch, every house, everything was covered by machine guns, m- pre-sided mortars, landmines, suicide bombers, you name it. It's So it was this horribly bloody, violent thing where you know it was, it was, it was a different situation because when you got up in the morning, you weren't thinking like, oh, I wonder if we're going to get into a gunfight today. What you were thinking was who's going to die? That's because you know, someone's going to die. It's it's hundred percent. Like a hundred percent. Someone's going to die today from, from our side, from the, from the Iraqi soldiers that we're working with. Somebody's going to die. 100%. Who's it going to be? Who's going to get their leg blown off? Who's going to be blinded? Who's, you know? And then also me, even though I was not a medic in the military, I was, my job was to basically act as a medic because I'd had, you know, pretty good medical training during my time in the military. So that was another aspect of it too. So it was this savage, brutal, it was an entirely different kind of war. That I did not understand because I had not actually experienced it, and during the fighting as well, kind of acting as a medic was something that I did not like doing. I absolutely hated it. Um, I, it's, it's not my, I, I, while I have compassion, while I care, while I want to save people's lives, I'm not the guy that should be the medic. Like, uh, yes, I will do the job. Don't get me wrong, and I'll do my best, but it tore me up. It really tore me up, um, in ways that it didn't affect other guys. Other guys were not as affected by it as it, as it affected me. And there's just nothing I can do about it. It's just the way I'm wired. Um, so yeah, by, yeah, you're, you're wrapping and you're putting some guys guts back into his body. You're holding a little girl's hand. Um, there was tons of other people who were wounded and, you know, we lost two of the guys from our team, several other guys, uh, on our team that same day when, you know, the, uh, uh you mentioned the name Sky, my buddy Sky. He got a bullet right through his pocket. He was fine. It you know shattered his iPhone, which was in his case. And I, while I was standing right next to him, you know, another guy got a bullet through his gun. Another guy had three bullets go through his backpack. This is all in the, just the same morning. Another guy got hit in the face with shrapnel from bullets hitting the Humvee and little metal shards flying around everywhere. So. It was an entirely different experience than just being in Afghanistan with a SEAL platoon with all the assets that America can provide and just dominating your enemy.
0: Yeah, Very absolutely. Different. Absolutely. And that is kind of what you've talked about a lot where yeah, I was going to ask the question, but you basically answered it there, which is what is the difference between going to war as a SEAL versus not as a SEAL? And, and that goes well beyond just, you know, the the high speed gear that you had as a seal versus, you know, the busted up AK-47 with the iron sights that you had to use in the fight against ISIS. But, you know, it's just kind of a different situation. But I, I do like how you flippantly and just kind of like, as an aside, mentioned getting hit just then. Guys, what he means is he got shot. I mean, like you were shot by ISIS and it's it was kind of a crazy scenario. And I don't really want to give away any details that you're not comfortable with because you're the one that got shot. I didn't. But, you know, I, it wasn't lost on me that a lot of people go to war seals included and they don't lose anything physically, right? You know, they, ha- they haven't been hit. Uh, they haven't been shot. They haven't been hit with shrapnel. Like they haven't been blown up. Like none of those things happen, but here you are, you'd already made it through, uh, the seals and you were, you kind of gone into that next phase of life, but here you are. And you got shot because you were, you know, fighting against, against ISIS. And really the, the scenario where you got shot was just crazy. It was a crazy rescue scenario, which, you know, if you want to get into the details, feel free, but guys, we do actually have a video of this kind of daring rescue that you were a part of where you were kind of hiding behind a tank, but just take us through the mindset of what it was like being over there in the capacity that you were, but then to actually get shot by the enemy.
1: So the, the particular mission that you're mentioning, um, that happened June 2nd, um, 2017. So it's about almost, I think it was almost exactly 30 days since we had entered, Uh, Mosul. So the day before, which was June 1st, 2017, was the deadliest day of the deadliest battle, of the deadliest urban battle the world has seen since World War II. And on June 1st, the day before, um, ISIS had massacred more than 200 just Iraqi civilians, unarmed Iraqi civilians who were trying to run away from ISIS territory to get to the safety of the Iraqi army. ISIS was keeping civilians with them as they had to continue, as they continued to lose ground. And so more and more and more civilians were being packed into a smaller and smaller area within the city of Mosul itself um, in a place called the old city. It's where the the mosque is, where al-Baghdadi proclaimed the existence of the caliphate and all that stuff before ISIS blew it up. Um, So you have all these civilians, but the uh, ISIS is doing that intentionally. So that way, American and Iraqi forces don't, you know, can't have the freedom uh, to just bombard them, right? Because if they didn't have the civilians there, well, great, we're going to send in, we're going to do like a, you know, <laughs> we're going to do a seventy-two hour bombardment, blow up every single building, and then send in troops to clean up whoever's left, right? So ISIS knows that, so they keep all the civilians there, because you know, for all the hate that the U.S. military gets, and that even like the Iraqi army at that time, for all the hate that they get, it's like they go, they literally risk their lives, and I, I saw tons of Iraqi soldiers die because they didn't want to use large explosives because that might kill the civilians in these buildings. So guys died to save these people to prevent them from, from death. So, um, people need to understand that about the U S military and like, they go through extraordinary lengths to save life. Um, so with that being said, a group of, a group of 200 plus more than 200 people tried to flee ISIS all at the same time. They just ran for it. Well, They were crossing this large, like four or five lane highway, which had been completely rubbled and destroyed. So it looks just like a big flat field of, of concrete chunks. And ISIS killed over 200 of them, slaughtered them, men, women, kids. Uh, There was a old man slumped over in a wheelchair. Um, There was babies, pregnant women, you name it. Everybody slaughtered everybody. And so the morning of June 2nd, we found this massacre. We saw what had happened, the aftermath of it. Well, about 50, maybe 50 or 25 yards away from ISIS headquarters at the time, which was a hospital, ironically, an old like four or five story hospital um, where ISIS was headquartered and they had like probably 100 civilians or more being held hostage in there. About 25 yards away where there was a pile of 20 or 30 bodies of people who had been murdered. And in the bodies, there were several survivors and one of the survivors was just this little girl. She was hiding under, we, we believe was her mother. She was hiding under her mother's uh, hijab, um, hiding under her clothing and, but still completely completely alive and un, un, appeared to be unharmed. So she'd been out there for you know pretty much 24 hours at that point when we found that she was there. But it, again, it's right in front of ISIS headquarters. So, we put together a rescue mission with the Iraqi army and the Iraqi army. Long story short, they agreed to give us a tank. Um, they, they agreed to send one tank. It was an American built tank, but it was manned by Iraqi army soldiers. So it belonged to the Iraqi army. And uh, our team leader actually called the US military, had them put a drone overhead. And then the US military agreed to actually use an artillery unit to put up a smoke screen for us to so we could go in and get these people out and so we went in on the ground into Isis territory literally behind enemy lines uh, it doesn't it doesn't get any you know worse than that really um, we drove straight into Isis territory behind this tank while this artillery is coming in and Providing a smoke screen. And of course, ISIS, they're halfway blinded and they're also kind of taking cover. They're not really sure what's going on. They think there's a ground assault happening. So they're firing blindly, almost blindly, through all this smoke. And we're out there in the open. Bullets are landing everywhere. Uh, mortars are are blown up because ISIS has had pre-sided these positions with mortars. So they're dropping mortars everywhere, machine guns coming in from the front, from the side. Um, I don't know if they were firing RPGs or not. It was too loud to tell just too much gunfire. Um, and also the engine of the tank was so hot that it was like burning, you know, the small hairs off the back of our hands and faces and stuff. And, but we had to stay close to the tank, use either that or die. So we got up to where this pile of bodies was and the, the main gun from the tank is firing. And again, we're not, we're not even wearing ear protection at this point. So you're just, the the gun goes off. All you hear is ringing, um, there's gunfire coming in. It's just chaos, there's bodies everywhere. And um, myself and Sky, uh, we laid down a, a, a covering uh, we laid down a base of covering fire for Dave, the team leader. He ran out and grabbed the little girl and brought her back that video. The video of that happening has you know been probably seen 100 million or 250 million times all over the world. Um, incredibly heroic thing that, that Dave did going and getting the girl and, um, brought her back. And then there's, so then, and then what we did was we had to go and get, there were two men who were also in that pile of bodies. We brought them back behind the tank. The problem with one of the wounded men was that he had been wounded like under his armpit and it was, he, he was still oozing fresh blood. So his arm was like, I don't know, like almost detached. It was pretty messed up. And so picking him up and like putting him on my back was not an option. Um, and so we found like a sh- piece of sheet metal or something on the ground, threw him on it and we're trying to drag him out of there. So the tank, um, the tank started backing up. So keep in mind there it's the, the tank is being manned by the Iraqi army. So we can't communicate with it. We can't tell it to stop nothing. And it's just, it's just coming. So you better be better keep up. Well, as we were pulling this guy back, um, he fell off of the, the this metal sheet that we had found in the road, which probably had been used the day before by somebody carrying out their family member or something. And uh, he fell right in the direction. He fell right in the um, line of tread, so the tank was about to run him over. And again, we can't tell it to stop. It's like three feet away. So I grabbed him, rolled him out of the way. Bullets are, again, bullets are coming in like crazy now. ISIS kind of sees what's up. They've kind of redoubled their efforts to kill us because... They now, they now see the tank backing up. So they think that they've repelled some kind of attack is probably what's going on in their heads. So they're like, yeah, let's, let's finish these guys off. So this man, I I moved him out of the way of the tank. The tank tread missed him by literally, I mean, four or five inches. And I looked down at the guy and I just said, I'm sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't get him. There was no way the tank, he was about to be in front of the tank. If the tank fired its main gun, that would knock me out, possibly kill me. And then also there was just too much incoming fire. There was no way to get this guy. It just was not humanly possible. And I'm certainly not Superman. So I had to look at this guy. We made eye contact and I just said, I'm sorry. And I shook my head. Um, I stood, you know, I I got back behind the tank, kind of in the general protection of what I thought was general protection of the tank and immediately got shot from the side. Um, The bullet hit my calf. It went right through. Um, Very, very minor wound wound. Um, It didn't it didn't hit my any arteries. It didn't hit any um, bones or anything like that. But when I got hit, of course, I didn't know that. But so I fell down behind the tank. And I was kind of, you know, in in that moment, I was a little bit stunned, like, oh, my word, like, I just got shot. (laughs) Like, what the heck, man? And, uh, so I'm looking at my leg. Well, the other guys in the team, they start screaming at me. And one of the guys, he starts hitting me. He's like, get up dude. So I turn around and I look and the tank's about to run me over. It's literally three feet away. I could have put up, I could have put out my hand and touch the tread of this tank. Um, and so I had no choice, but just to get up and keep going. So I got up, luckily my leg held just fine and, um, put a tourniquet on while, um, this, this was, this is again why, you know, some of the stories are kind of personal because it's like. I'm literally tripping over the bodies of dead children as I'm, you know, bleeding from two holes in my leg, trying to throw on a tourniquet, ISIS gunfire is coming in. I just had to tell this guy that I can't save him. So I basically just condemned this man to death. And yeah, we have, we have you know, I don't know, 50 or 60 ISIS fighters trying to kill us. And so, yeah, we, we continued moving back toward Iraqi army lines and, um, we basically got to a point where there was like a hundred yards of open ground that we would have to cover. Just, uh, it's difficult to explain without seeing it, but basically the tank was not in a position to where it could turn and protect us as we crossed this open area. Um, I was, I started getting really lightheaded. Um, obviously I was bleeding. I saw that I had two, I, I had bright red oxygenated blood pumping from both holes in my leg. So I, at that point I wasn't sure if it hit if it had hit a vein or not, and then I also started feeling lightheaded. So I'm like, okay, there's a fairly decent chance I'm going to lose consciousness from from blood loss, um, and I can't risk that. So what we we started screaming at the soldiers, the Iraqi soldiers who were across this sort of hundred yard open area, maybe it's fifty yards, um, and we start screaming at them to send us a Humvee, just send just send an armored Humvee out. It'll take you. Two seconds, we can throw everybody in there and we can cross this open ground because now ISIS sees us. The smoke has all but dissipated and we're still taking heavy fire. So we cannot move across the open. We will 100% die if we move across in the open. So the Iraqi army was not getting the message. And so at that point, I was like, well, I'm the only one here who's really expendable. So because the other guys were dealing with the other two patients and I'm already useless because I'm hit. Um, so I was just like, I'm going to move across the street. I'm going to do this. So I just told the other guys, I'm like, I'm going. And so then I hobbled across the street as fast as I could. Uh, kind of basically was like skipping. Um, immediately ISIS opened fire. Uh, my buddy Sky, he mentioned that he could see the bullets landing just right behind my feet as I was running. He could see the bullets impacting. Um, and they're flying past my face and everything, but made it across the open. And I started screaming at the Iraqis to send a Humvee. They got the message yeah <laughs> and I ironically one of the uh, the guy who actually drove the humvee it was a um, a French journalist by the name of Bernard he was the one who hopped in a humvee he, he had he had uh, kind of embedded with our group uh, a few days prior uh, maybe a week prior and it, we had to like teach him how to drive a humvee just in case. He's like, Hey, can you guys just show me how to use this? Cause Humvees are weird. So he's like, can you show me how to drive this Humvee? So we had taught him how to drive a Humvee just in case. And we, I remember we had cracked a joke and we were like, Bernard, if you have to drive a Humvee, it's cause things have gone really, really bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Ironically. And and what I personally think is probably one of the best acts of hero- heroism that I've seen. He jumps in a Humvee, a, a, an unarmed French journalist who's just there to observe and report. He hops in a Humvee after seeing me get shot, seeing this massacre. He drives out into the middle of gunfire, gets the rest of the team, drives them back across the street to to safety. And that that to me was probably the most one of the most heroic things I've seen because he didn't have to do that. It wasn't like as a soldier, it's like, yeah, you don't have to, but yeah, you have to. <laughs> you know, like you are expected to get in that Humvee and go out there he's just, you know, he didn't have to do that. And he did that, which which to me was just um, really incredible. Um, So I was taken to a bombed out mosque where, um, that they were using as a, uh, as an aid station, the Iraqi army was using as a sort of frontline aid station. And um, yeah, I had Iraqi army medics working on my leg, making sure that, you know, it was fine. It was minor wound, um, all things considered. And then they brought in the little girl, you know, she had survived and, um, she was just covered in blood and from not her blood, other people's blood and was just sort of in shock. And, um, she was pretty unresponsive. She was just kind of like, kind of dazed. Um, but then when they gave her food and water, she just like came to life and was just chugging the water and eating the food. She was starving. Um, so they cleaned her up, got her a dress. I don't even know where they found a dress. They found a little girl's dress somewhere. and cleaned her up. And then she, uh, the, the wife of our team leader, her name is Karen. Uh, she, she was in, she was there as well. And so this little girl just curled up in Karen's arms and just fell asleep. And it was like, during that time, uh, you know, I'm seeing all this. I just, I just put my head, I just put my hat over my face and I just started weeping. Cause it was like, you know, like, Holy cow, man. Like we just saved this little girl. And, you know, but like what horrible things has she seen? And, you know, she doesn't even really understand what just happened. But, um, and then we were also able to save the other man, um, who, um, yeah, he's, he's alive and well as well as, as is the little girl.
0: I mean, that's just, it's a crazy story, but also just an absolutely crazy ending. I I just can't believe that that's even a true story. So I really appreciate you going into that amount of detail. Um, and man, I just got to be honest, whenever I, I read the accounts, not only just of the story that you just wrote, but also any of the accounts in the rest of your book or what Holly McKay has written, when I hear about the atrocities, I feel this tremendous bubbling up of hatred inside of me. And I mean, if I was giving a speech or something like that, I'd probably say something fancy like, no, it's righteous anger or righteous indignation. But no, it, it is hatred. It is hatred for evil. It's hatred for sin and all those different things. And... Which makes this quote that I'm going to read from the end of your book so crazy. I just want to go ahead and read this quote and then I'll kind of set up the question from there. So here we go. How does a disciplined and noble soldier come home and suddenly fall prey to drugs or alcohol? How does a brave and honorable soldier come home and suddenly begin hurting those around him? How does a soldier who fought and survived so many battles come home and suddenly decide to kill himself? It's not because he was afraid of getting shot at. It's not because he misses the guys on his team too much. It's not because he's bored and misses the action. It is because something happened over there that he cannot make peace with. It's nothing more than a consuming hatred for either himself or someone else. This hatred and anger and bitterness are what drive men crazy when they come home. And the only way I've found to heal these wounds is to give up the hatred. When I was in Iraq, I spoke with David Eubank about vengeance and hatred. He told me a story about how he had once watched a family with several small children get blown up by an IED. He said the only thing that helped him overcome that hatred and thirst for revenge was the Bible verse that says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 12:19. That verse was saying that humans are not capable of harboring a spirit of revenge within themselves. That hatred destroys us. It destroys soldiers coming home from war, and it destroys communities, countries, and entire races who cannot let go of it. I held on to this principle David shared with me. It took me some time to adjust my way of thinking, but one day I decided that when I went into battle, I would fill my heart with love for those who stood behind me and not with hatred for those who stood against me. I wasn't going to bring that hatred home with me. I learned how to forgive ISIS for the terrible things they did, not for their sake, but for mine. So I just got to be honest, even even speaking from a Christian worldview, and Ephraim, you're talking to a lot of Christians right now, and everything that we know about grace and everything that we know about forgiveness, that's hard. Uh, That's really, really hard to get to that place. When when you read in in these books and, and you hear these stories about how ISIS was cooking babies, on, on hot pieces of, of like scrap metal, cooking them to death, the, the torture that they put women through before they murdered them. Like, it's just these, these unbelievably heinous things. And to hear you say that, you know, you just had to give up your hatred for them. You know, help me understand how you could get to a place mentally where you could say something like that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So it's a, it's a difficult concept to, I guess, try to explain, but I I guess two thoughts the first thought is if you and again again this is gonna be hard for people to accept but it's it it's it's just reality um if you had been born if you or I had been born in the same village under the same teacher in some you know some backwoods backwards you know Iraqi village or some village in the Middle East where they teach hatred for the West and hatred for everything and that God wants you to blow people up and that it's okay to murder tons of civilians if they're apostates because they're leaving the caliphate which means that they're they deserve death they're actually worse than the Christians and the Jews they they must be destroyed right so if you're taught this kind of ideology and you're taught that it's okay to do whatever bad thing that you want to do um as long as it's not to like a fellow muslim in good standing then there's a very good chance that you or I would do these things. And I know that's hard to, that's a hard pill to swallow because one of the things that we do when we look at our enemies is we go, what do we do? We call them savages. We call them dogs. We call them animals. We call them whatever. And so we dehumanize them. Well, what are we doing? We're separating ourselves from them. We're going, I don't have that evil in me that you have in you. And there's this, um, there's this, I'm better than you aspect, which again, yeah, if you're, if you're not cooking babies on, on stovetops, then yes, you are better than that person. So that's just the, that's just the first thought is just, if you were them, you'd probably do exactly what they did. And again, that's a hard pill to swallow because everybody's like, no, I would never do anything bad. Um. That's, that's the, that's the biggest piece, I guess, to, to try to understand. Um, and as far as forgiving them, forgiveness is completely different than justice. Forgiveness just means like, I'd, I'm not going to harbor hatred towards you. You're a moron. You're a clown. Look at you. It's like you're an evil scumbag, right? Like I almost pity you. Like how, like think about how evil and moral and depraved and the mental angst that you would have to have to be someone like, be, you know, be like ISIS, right? Think about just how morally and just miserably de- depraved you would have to be, right? And I'm not saying that they deserve sympathy. What I'm saying though, is we should look at them, we should look on them in, in pity and, With forgiveness, that's for you. That's not for them. Forgiveness doesn't mean not holding them accountable. Justice is holding them accountable. So don't get me wrong. When I say that I've learned to forgive ISIS people for what I've personally seen them do and what they've personally done to me, what they've personally done to my friends, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be held accountable for their actions because, because don't get me wrong, I think that they should be hunted down and their their th- throats should be slit in the middle of their bed if we can get guys in there like we need to hunt these guys down zero mercy kill them all i don't think we should take isis guys prisoner i think we should put them all to death they should all be killed they should every single one of them should be slaughtered now that doesn't mean torture them it just means put them to death because they're they're so far gone and what they did was evil but understand that they are also our humans and that the same evil that's in them has the potential to be in us if we don't make the right decisions, if we don't stand up for the right ideology. If, Because I guarantee you there was ISIS guys who were going, "Uh, yeah, that's actually not what the Quran says. So probably we shouldn't be like cooking babies because I don't see that in the Quran anywhere. right?" But they didn't stand up and say anything. Again, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So- the, the the concept of forgiving them—it's almost in my mind—it's like I, I just look at them as fools. I look at them as utter fools who all need to be put to death. But I'm not going to be like consumed with like hatred because of who they are and what they did. Um, I hate their ideology for sure, but and I will do everything I can to stop it. But I'm not going to lay in bed at night and be like, "Look what those ISIS guys did." I I just want to go find them all and kill them which I do, don't get me wrong, (laughs) but I'm not going to let it consume me. I, I hope that made sense.
0: No, it absolutely makes sense. And mainly it made sense because it's the mature point of view. It is the absolutely, you know, hover outside of your situation, look down on it and just make a call that is mature and and not really driven by emotions. And that's the thing whenever most of us, and I would say for me included, and for most of the guys listening to this, how many times have emotions got you in just ridiculous amounts of trouble? Like you made some really, really bad decisions and, you know, these military units, they aren't, uh, you know, they're not avoiding that all the time either we've, we've heard about these different units or different groups that have gone in to war and gone in on essentially these revenge missions and it just didn't really work out for them and and i mean that in the worst way possible where maybe they even got more of their guys killed because they were just acting out of emotion and so we, we definitely don't want people to act in that way and so it's good that you kind of pointed it out the way that you did so sober-minded but Really, kind of to bring all this together, you know when I look at everything that I read in your book and everything that you 've said today and everything that you've said in other interviews, I think it comes down to your personal faith and your your personal worldview so, as you 've already mentioned before, you grew up in a devout Baptist family, more specifically, an independent fundamentalist Baptist uh-huh. family, and obviously that shaped you, but then you had your experiences uh-huh. as a seal, your experiences doing other things that you know with your humanitarian work and all the things that you 've seen that's got to have an impact on how you view the world, how you view a god of any kind, a deity of any kind, those those types of deals. So I just want to give you some space to kind of explain mm-hmm. how all of those things have affected where you're at right now and what you believe. Because uh, again, this isn't a, are you a religious or not type of question? Because I don't consider myself to be religious. I'm a disciple of Jesus. That's not being religious. That's not acting virtuous on Sunday. So people that, you know, think that you're a good person, but for you, for Ephraim Matos, where has where have you fallen on the issue of a deity or or something like that in terms of the mm-hmm. things that you've seen
1: sure so to be perfectly honest i still my, my answer with like specifically the, you know the triune god and and all that it's like i don't know i don't know kind of some of those some of the details of you know, I guess like what is the absolute, absolute truth. And in and, and in my and in my own way, I'm still kind of working through some of the maybe some of the specific details. However, overall, in general, I absolutely believe there's a God. I believe there's a loving God who um through one force or another, you know, created the world, put it into the uh the the ordered yet decaying form that it is. And I think that I think that we have, I think that we have free will. I think that the problems that we see on earth are not God's fault. And I don't think it's fair for humans to both get angry at God for things that have happened. Cause this, this was also something that I had to deal with. Um, even just as early as last year, I went through a really, really dark period last year where I, I was kind of dealing with a, with a back injury. So, I couldn't travel, but also because of COVID was going on. So, I also couldn't travel. And so, there was, I was kind of forced to stop and stay in one place for a couple of months, which I haven't done in years. And one of the things I really had to work through was I was like, like the evil, terrible, horrible things that I've seen, I still kind of had to refresh my own thoughts and beliefs toward what I've seen. How do you reconcile it? How do you reconcile this? How do I reconcile the stuff that I've seen and believe that there's still, you know, a good and loving God. But again, it goes back to that conversation I had back in 10th grade. And it's that God created the world. He governs it through natural law. You know, the laws of nature are the laws of God. The laws of God are the laws of nature. They're one in the same. Science is God's law. That's how the world works. And if we as humans do not follow natural law, we will have to suffer the consequences, right? So if we don't follow natural law, I think as a, you know, a Christian would refer to that as sin. And, we're going to have to suffer the consequences of our poor decisions. And when I look at the evil that I've seen, that's not God's fault. He's just as upset again as he's more upset than anybody because of, of, he's like, no, this isn't what I intended. And at the end of the day, I think he's sitting up there uh, and I, again, I don't think there's like a God like on a throne somewhere sure, uh, that's just not right. my personal belief, but I think there's like, God is in everything. And I think that it's sitting there going like, all right, th- those bad guys have the, have the capability to do horrible, evil, awful things. Well, what about all these people here? They have the, they have the ability to do incredibly wonderful, kind, love filled, heroic things. And Again, this goes back to the, the quote: "The only thing necessary for those bad things to continue happening is for these good people over here to just kind of do nothing." So, in the end, I I don't know exactly what God wants. I don't know exactly what form God God takes. I don't, I don't, I don't know, and but I do know we need to do the best that we can. We need to do the most good that we can. We need to do the most heroic, good things. That we possibly can to counteract the evil that's in the world, and that all and that takes different forms. You know, people. I'll go on a podcast, or people hear my story, and then it's I want to do what you do, and it's like, well, I'm uniquely suited to just do what it is that I do. You might be an accountant, right? And that's a wonderful thing. Well, you can be an accountant who is helping different organizations or who is helping to, you know, maybe work with a lawyer to expose corruption over here, or, you know, wh- whatever it might be. There's so many different ways that you can use your talents, your interests, your abilities. And people talk about God's will. What is God's will for my life? And, and I get frustrated when, you know, like I'll have, I'll have teenagers a lot of times, Hey man, I'm not sure what God's will is for me. Should I join the military or not? And my response is like, are you like, just like dying to join the military? Like, cause you want to help people? And they're like, yeah, but maybe I should go to Bible college or something. And I'm like, no, but I don't really want to go to Bible college. It's like, no, dude, go join the, the the go join the military. Do god wants you to do what you love to do. Not what brings you temporary pleasure, but what brings you true joy and peace. That's what God wants you to do. So go do that. Find a way to do that to serve others, to serve your family, to serve your community. And in that way we can all in our own way counteract the evil that is isis because again when you look at isis we talk about them yeah burning people alive and killing babies and all the horrific things they did to their sex slaves and stuff like that that wasn't all the isis guys though that was probably a relatively small percentage of the isis guys you want to know who else was involved with isis though they have their own accountants they have their own cooks they have their own you know leaders and all this other stuff the forces of darkness they don't just have their frontline guys. They've got all the support in the background that makes it all possible. And the forces of good, yes, we have the frontline SEALs and Green Berets and humanitarians going into these places, but we need all the other people involved too. We're absolutely nothing. It's like when we are in the SEAL teams, it's like we can't do anything if, <laughs> if our non-SEAL support people right, right. aren't helping us. So I think if you want to call it the Lord's army, if you want to call it just the forces of good, whatever it is, find your spot. Be a part of the anti-ISIS. Be a part of the forces of good that are doing something. And that's kind of how I feel about it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you going into that and giving that kind of detail. And it gets into gifting, doesn't it? Because, you know, for me personally, I'm not naturally empathetic. So for me to be something like a counselor or a social worker or something Mm -hmm. like that, it's something that I feel like I could do, but that it would probably be soul crushing for me. And the same could be said for someone that maybe doesn't have kind of that internal fortitude or courage or constitution to where, you know, the military would probably be a bad fit for someone like that or or the police or something like that. It just wouldn't be a great fit for those people. But I also think it comes down to God's perfect will Mm -hmm. for your life versus his realized will for your life. I mean, because just think about the example of you know you talk about the the kid who's should I go into the military or should I go to Bible college? God's will can be done regardless of the decision that's made. He can use your decisions for His good and for greater good. So if you zigged when you should have zagged, it may not be His perfect will for you, but it will be His realized will. He will still be able to get His will done on this earth. But I think that kind of you know makes me want to go over into a different area where it talks about um, for me for me personally. There are a lot of people around me that believe in God, but it's the Jesus part that maybe trips them up a little bit, right? Maybe they don't believe it or or fully understand it or something like this. But, and so like for you, and you think about this as you extrapolate it out to a larger worldview, let's say you're watching these people, right? You're, you have ISIS in your crosshairs. You have an ISIS fighter in your crosshairs and you're you're terrible AK 47 that you're just like you with your iron sights (laughs) pointed at them or whatever. And let's say you miss you, you take the shot and you miss if you miss and you have a materialist point of view, there's no ultimate justice in that situation because a strict materialist, we're just stardust, right? We're stardust bumping into other stardust. None of this, you know, makes any sense. None of this even matters. And so all the judgment and justice has to occur occur here on this planet because there will be no ultimate or cosmic justice. But then for me, it it makes me think of the gospel. It makes me think that, In order for any of us to become clean, in order for any of us to become just and righteous, we require the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We require it. It is an essential key in order for us to be sanctified, in us in order for us to be righteous, in order for there to be true judgment. And so, specifically, just to press you a little bit more on this topic, I want to know specifically what your thoughts are on Jesus, because this is a historical person that that we have a record of, a tremendous amount of record of, that has been historically proven that these these records are were kept accurate and passed down accurately. But for you and your personal faith, your personal faith rather, who is Jesus to you?
1: So this is actually, that's a really great question. Just a couple of days ago, I was actually talking with my aunt and we were having this very, very same, similar conversation. My, my take on Jesus, and again, this is just my own human, you know, view. Um, So was Jesus God incarnate? My honest opinion is I don't know, but... I really, really hope so. (laughs) Like I really, really do. Um, and, and ultimately none of us can truly know that till, you know, till we get to eternity. But when it comes down to specifically salvation for individuals or salvation for mankind or redemption in the eyes of God for horrible people who've done horrible things, I think the most important thing Jesus said, Jesus said incredible things his entire life. And, I think one of the most important things that he ever said was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Think about yeah, all the evil, terrible things that ISIS did to, for example, you know, to other people. But think about how evil and awful and terrible literally punching God himself in the face would be, stabbing God in the face with a uh, you know, spear, pounding nails into the hands of God himself think about how is is there a more horrible awful thing than that and part of what i think jesus was saying at the end there he said father forgive them for they know not what they do he said forgive them well why why it's cuz they just don't know what they're doing they're they are these are roman soldiers who are just doing their job and they don't understand the implications of what they're doing and i think that that message i think it's an important thing that's recorded in scripture because When you look at all of humanity, you have to look at these evil ISIS fighters and you have to go, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These ISIS fighters who are strapping bombs to themselves and blowing themselves up in many ways are showing much greater courage than you or I ever will. They truly are willing to go die for their God that that they believe in. And again, it's twisted and it's wrong. And it's the that's they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. And so I think that redemption in the eyes of God for someone who is an ISIS person, um, you know, don't forget God loves them too. God bef- before He formed them in the, in the womb, God know that God knew that person too. He wanted the best for that person's life too. And in the end, Jesus said, "Forgive them." because they don't know what they're doing. And I think that that sums up all of human existence. It's people who are running around trying to do the right thing. People who are running around trying to you know, follow God and they're being misled and they're being lied to. And this is why ideology is so important and, and truth and open and free discussions. And obviously we're our, our nation's dealing with major issues with that right now in our world. But at the end of the day, Jesus said forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We are we are incredibly corruptible um dark beings <laughs> at, at times who have the potential to do evil and we have to make the choice to do the right thing, but I think that God has way more mercy for evil people than we could possibly understand. And that's that's why I believe it.
0: Yeah, that's certainly true. And to be honest with you, Ephraim, I had other questions that I was going to go into here, but I think that we're kind of coming to a good ending point, but I do have uh, some things that I want to kind of encourage you with. I'm glad that you have friends and family that you can discuss this with. You mentioned talking about it with a family member, but I want to tell you a quick story because I think this might be applicable for you. So years ago, there was a buddy of mine, uh, he and I worked together and for whatever reason, this guy, every bad person that he knew growing up, Claim to be a Christian, like all of them. Like his his girlfriend's dad mm-hmm. was like this horrible racist guy, but he was also a deacon at the church, and it was like, of course, of course, that guy was a deacon at the church. Yeah. So he had never, wow. you know, talked to somebody that That's was real. like a responsible, you know, good person that was also a Christian. And so, but he kind of had some questions about the Christian worldview. So he and I got together. We decided to get together, and that we were going to do lunches, and that we were going to discuss it. So we obviously did lunch at Chick fil A right? You know, because Chick-fil-A has been anointed, but we were meeting one about once every week or two weeks. And we were going over the book, the reasons, the reason for God by Tim Keller. And it's, you know, seven arguments about, you know, uh, for him being a pastor in New York city, here are the seven Mm -hmm. arguments that he would always get from people as to why God couldn't exist. And then the last seven chapters of the book are the seven arguments for why it is reasonable to believe in God. And so he and I go through this book and we're going through all the questions, but then we get to the end and I kind of ask him, Hey buddy, you know, where are you at on all this? Like, what are you thinking? And he goes, man, I'm so thankful that you took the time with me to, to answer my questions and go through a book like this and, you know, go through my concerns and things like that. And I really appreciate that because I feel like I finally know a Christian that that's, you know, actually a good person at the same time. But now I feel like I need to do the exact same thing with a Muslim and with a Hindu and with the Sikh and all these different people. And I, I told him, I was like, hey, buddy, from a practical standpoint, from a pragmatic standpoint, I completely see your point of view and I agree with it. However, I'm going to try to actually save you a little bit of time. You need to reckon with the fact or, mm-hmm. you know, reckon with the idea that either Jesus died on a cross and was resurrected the third day or he didn't. Mm-hmm. The, everything else hinges on that. So, yeah, you can do all these different deep dives and studies of all these different things. But if that is true, then you really do need to to orient your life around that fact. And that would be my encouragement to you, Ephraim, Mm -hmm. and my encouragement to anybody listening to this that's maybe on the fence. You need to figure out whether or not you believe the resurrection actually happened. There is a lot of literature. There Mm -hmm. are a lot of books. There are a lot of things out there that talk about the resurrection and what happened in the first century, you know, 2,000 years ago Mm -hmm. in the Middle East. And so the the thing that's very, very poignant in terms of how this point can be made is, you know, we talked about materialists just a second ago. If we are all just materialists, right? So if you're a materialist, and I'm not necessarily saying that you are, but if you think that we're just, just our material and you're right, then... Guess what? You can look at a guy like me and think, man, dude, you've wasted so much time, so much money going to church and being around Christians and and giving Mm -hmm. to tithes and offerings. You've wasted so much time. And that would be the only thing I will have lost is that time that I can't get back and that money that I can't get back. But to the materialist or to the person that isn't a follower of Christ, I would say to you that what you have on the line, if you're wrong, is everything. It's eternity. And so you have to make sure that you have the right answer. And it, from my worldview, the the right answer is noble. So I just wanted to give that word to you. I hope you appreciate that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think um, one of the one of the ways that I kind of look at the world too, and this is a kind of a funny analogy, is us humans trying to, trying to sit around and understand God, and trying to like on a on a purely objective materialist level trying to understand God is like two cats, two house cats. Trying to sit around and have a conversation about Wi-Fi, right? And I, just know, I know it sounds completely ridiculous, and it is <laughs> because right. it's like there is no way that these cats can understand the concept of Wi-Fi, and so we as humans are trying to understand the spiritual realm, trying to understand the fourth dimension. We're trying to understand what, okay, what what are these UFOs? Like, what are are there demons? Are there angels? Did was Jesus raised from the dead? Was all these different things? And it's one of those things where it's like, man, like. I, Maybe, you know, I have no idea because it's, but it's, but it's also, it's like, we, we are the cats trying to figure out wifi. Um, they just, they don't have the language to truly capture it. Um, or the, the cognitive ability to do it. Not, not that humans are, you know, just dumb animals, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I totally see where you're, where you're coming from because if there's no, if there's no foundation, if there's no, you know, Christ rising from the dead, well, then he was just a man and, and a good man who said really, really great things. Um, right? but then, yeah, that can affect the outcome of, of the faith. And of of course the, the Christian faith and, and many other things. And yeah. So I, I mean, my answer to that personally is again, I know it's, it's a cop-out answer, but it's like, I, I don't know. And I, I hope it's real. I really do. I really hope that, um, Jesus was God. I really hope that, uh, he was raised from the dead because man, like what incredible hope that gives humanity, what incredible hope and good that, that, that does. Um, but I would also say too, for people who you know maybe don't believe or whatever, while you may not have um the same sort of Christian uh beliefs or something like that, you can still live a how do I say, like you could still live a a very good life. you can still go out and help other people like like one of the uh one of the guys who' was out there in Iraq who's helping us one of the guys on the team who's an atheist. He's like, no, nope, I don't believe in God. God doesn't exist. And, and it was like, he was still this incredibly brave person who was very, you know, very emotional, very like, it, like, uh, emotional in like empathy. Like he really cared about the people and all that. So, um, I, I guess what I want to say is like, if, if people don't believe in, you know, maybe Christianity or something like that, I know that, um, Okay, so growing up, we had a lot. What we had a lot of kids who were like, "Yeah, I, I just completely disagree with Christianity, and it's like I think it's dumb, whatever." And then they just run off and they use that as an excuse to go live horrible lives. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? So it's like you can still maybe be questioning these things. You can still be trying to learn more about them, and you can still be um, a good person. That doesn't mean that you're bad. It doesn't mean that you're weak or something like that. It just means that you're thoughtful and you're trying to understand. Um, you're trying to understand these difficult concepts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, it is a ridiculous example because it's a ridiculous example, I mean, it <laughs> my fight, but I mean, at the end of the day, it is, it, it's right? true. Yeah. it is true, but this is the question that I would oppose to your atheist friend in Iraq. It mm-hmm. would have been, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? You right. Know, why? And he would probably say, because it's the right thing to do, uh, to which point I would respond and say, okay, so what are you basing your understanding of good off of? I mean, because at the end of the day, the ISIS guy thinks he's doing
1: good. Absolutely. The
0: ISIS guy that's that's cooking babies and slitting women's throats and chopping the heads off of children like they think they're doing well. And what's implicit in that question is there is a moral law somewhere that exists outside of ourselves, And it's not something that we figured out, you know, in France in the 1700s, like that's not, (laughs) that's not where enlightenment actually happened. You call it that, but that doesn't mean that we realize we shouldn't be doing those things. It exists outside Mm -hmm. of us. It's something that we can't control. And it's something that we can't define uh, in, in a way that is, that even makes sense in terms of the cosmos. But This really brings up for me as well uh, what C.S. Lewis talked Mm -hmm. about. You know, it's kind of known as the trilemma. But Jesus couldn't have just Mm -hmm. been a good moral teacher. Like, that was not possible. He didn't give us that option. He was either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. I mean, that's it. That those are our only options. But, you know, before we go off and and go into another hour of this, because I can have every tangent on the planet, I just wanted to thank you again for for spending some time on this podcast, but also just for what you've done and what you can continue to do. I mean, the humanitarian thing can be thankless, but we really are trying to equip men to push back darkness. But you're one of those men that is on the ground actually pushing back darkness in all these crazy places. But before we let you go, is there anything else that you want to get off your
1: chest? Uh no, I just want to say you know thank you uh, for having me on. I I, I don't uh, I don't take this opportunity lightly to to talk to you and talk to talk to your listeners. It's it's it truly is a it's an honor to be able to you know use technology to uh to to do these and have these conversations. And um yeah, and I also just want to encourage people too. You know if you want to go check out our organization, Stronghold Rescue. I th- think you said you're going to put the link in the show notes. But also I want to say this too. Like if you are already tithing at your church, and you're or you're already giving to charity, or maybe there's another organization that you were thinking about giving to. You know what? Like, don't give to us. That's fine. Like, we're doing okay. Um, but I would just encourage people to, you know, get involved in some way, shape, or form. There's a lot of people today are suffering from a lack of meaning, and a lot of that has to do with. Not getting yourself involved in a cause. So whether that's at your local church, whether that's your local homeless shelter, whatever it might be, I just encourage people to, to find something that they can do and, uh, yeah, go be a part of it. Cause it'll make your life a much better, a much better place in the, in the world, a much better place as well.
0: That's a great word to end on. Ephraimatos, thanks for coming on, on Daunted Life, a man's podcast.
1: Awesome. Thanks brother.
0: There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Ephraim Montos. I know that it was just a unique opportunity for me. And I really enjoyed being able to get into that amount of detail because sometimes you just don't have enough time with these people. You're trying to smush as many, as many stories and questions into about 30 or 45 minutes. And guys, I didn't even talk about five or six of the things that I wanted to talk about just because it's just how the interview went. And I really like when interviews, like I kind of plan it out, but then it goes its own way. So I like when it kind of gets a mind of its own and goes that direction. So I really enjoyed that. But before we let you guys go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that by providing you content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the notes I got for you today, the links I got for you, we've got the link to the Stronghold Rescue and Relief website. So if you want to become a donor, you want to support them, you can go to their website and do that. And also check out some of the stuff that they're doing. I've also got a link to the book that I quoted from several times in this interview. It's called City of Death, Humanitarian Warriors in the Battle of Mosul. Then I've got a couple of YouTube videos. Well, one's YouTube, one's Vimeo. One is of basically, it's this crazy situation where they're clearing a house where ISIS was. And it's actually a helmet camera video that Ephraim was wearing as they were kind of doing this. It's nuts. And then we've also got the Mosul rescue. So the one where we were talking about where he got shot, but also where Dave, the other guy that was in his group ran and kind of saved that girl whenever he was putting down suppressive fire. That's the one that went viral, you know, a couple of years ago. I've got that in there for you as well. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this. We really do appreciate it. Whether you're listening to this, wherever you're listening to this, rather, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, make sure you just email me at info at undaunted.life. That's just I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. You can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming. Just go to www.undantin.life. And again, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The entire track on this podcast is their new recording of the song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of the album Leveler. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah